I'm going to show my age here, Tad, but the first federal election campaign I remember engaging with in any meaningful, politically conscious sense was the 1993 Sweetest Victory of All campaign when Paul Ketting famously defeated John Hewson. That was almost 30 years ago. Uh, I, and there may well be reasons for this particular to me as an individual, don't recall ever paying less attention to any federal election campaign than this one. And I've been very struck by that, and my feeling, anecdotally at least, is that many, many other people, including very politically conscious people, have also completely switched off. So I'll start with a very simple question. Are you engaged with this campaign? Are you paying close attention? And if not, why not? I've got to confess, I'm yet another victim of not paying <laughs> that much close attention to this campaign. Um, <clears throat> The last election uh, campaign in uh, 2019, I believe, I was actually living overseas for part of it, and I must say I was still more engaged back then. Um, this, uh, I think, um, I think this phenomenon is uh, to be expected, actually, um, because of the hollowness of what's going on. Um, I mean, if you listen to some people, uh, particularly people who like to do a lot of social media, you would think that this is uh, an extremely important campaign. Um, you know, it's life and death that Anthony Albanese uh, defeats uh, Scott Morrison and makes real change. But when you look at what the major parties and, in fact, the minor parties are offering, there's really a sense, a terrible sense of stasis um, in terms of what they're offering. Um, they're offering such... Uh, narrow platforms is really um, not even the pretense uh, of them being visionary. I think it's uh, it's incredible that if Albanese wins as appears um, for the uh, possible, you know, for the, um, given the polls and so on, um, it's going to be the first time a Labor Party government has come into power in the post-war period without having kind of an agenda to come in on. It's really on the basis of uh, we're this small target and uh, ScoMo is really bad and uh, vote for us. Yeah, they seem to have both political parties, major political parties, seem to have abandoned the notion of taking a mandate uh, to the people, which uh, historically has been uh, very much a key part of election campaigns. The famous firebrand uh, socialist had and one-time pin-up boy of the 1968 student movement in Britain, Tarek Ali, wrote a book a few years ago entitled The Extreme Centre. The central thesis of the work was the argument that since the triumph of the United States in the Cold War, Western politics more and more followed a path of what has come to be known as neoliberal orthodoxy. A lot of political water has obviously gone under the historical bridge during this period, but essentially I would agree with his argument that major political parties throughout the Western world are now first and foremost technocratic administrators of the capitalist system. There are no major ideological differences, no serious battles over policies and ideas. This is surely true of this particular campaign as well, aside from a few trimmings here and there, like Labor's commitment to Medicare funding for dental treatment, a bit more money for the NDIS and so on. Would, would you agree with that assessment? Um, I think the idea that they are um, technocrats has become uh, less true over time, actually. I think there was an era of the technocrat, um, probably started in the 1980s, peaked with um, figures like uh, Bill Clinton and Tony Blair and finally um, 
Barack Obama, and then the final death knell, I think, of the technocrat was probably Emmanuel Macron, who appeared to be this technocrat who came out of nowhere, um, but in fact was forced to be intensely uh, political. I think the real question is that the ideological differences no longer fall on the old lines that we really uh, that really dominated the world since uh, quite early in the 20th century. I think the the settlement after the First World War was that uh, you increasingly saw all of politics divided up between left and right, where the left parties had a social base in you know, some section of the trade unions or the working class, um, and the uh, the right wing parties had you know uh, some kind of social base around business and the middle class. All those connections to social bases, in fact, those social bases have really hollowed out. There aren't really the social institutions around which politics organises itself. And so for a period of time, I think the technocrat solution was there to say, well, we can rise above all this. We can just um, you know, make decisions based on, on expertise uh, and, and we'll take the politics out of it because the old left-right politics is dead. But I think we've seen instead a, an incredible resurgence of politics just not on those old partisan lines. Uh, and if anything, the resurgence of politics has taken much more the form of um, there is uh, the politics of uh, the political elite, the political class, and how they increasingly have come to see the voters, the public, uh, society at large, as a kind of a problem and an impediment to be managed and have increasingly, I think, um, uh, come to see uh, themselves as, as being lined up on one side of this divide. Um, and, you know, if we, we can talk about the manifestations of it in terms of uh, the controversies over over the Brexit vote, uh, where there was a popular, narrow popular vote for Brexit against the wishes of the British political class. We can look at it in terms of the Trump vote, where, you know, Trump, even though he got a minority of votes, won the Electoral College, and suddenly the problem was seen this group of voters who are upsetting the political class's ability to, to, to run things. But then I think the ultimate expression really comes in the COVID period, um, which uh, I guess we should talk about at some point as well. What you're talking about there reminds me of the Bertolt Brecht line about if people vote for the wrong government, the government should replace the people. And you've also touched on this very disturbing liberal notion of, of managed democracy. It's extraordinary how some liberals abandon any commitment to democracy when results don't go their way. Of course, one of the other trends in recent years Years in many Western countries has been the rise of a very heterogeneous series of what some people have called outsider parties, all of which have been loosely grouped under the rubric of populism. I'm referring here to everything from the Five Star Movement in Italy, Nigel Farage's UK Independence Party, you've already mentioned Trump and his extraordinary takeover of the Republican Party in the United States, and of course in Australia, everyone's favourite coal billionaire, Clive Palmer. This is a huge topic, tad worthy of a discussion spanning several hours, but First of all, definitionally speaking, why do you think such disparate parties are all lumped together under this rather ill-fitting term populism? And, and what, does that, what does that really mean? What's, what's going on with, it, with these sorts of parties and movements? Yeah, look, I, I, think, um, I think really populism has been uh, the term used, not just because some of these parties uh, or uh, political actors use sort of classic populist tropes like talking about being... Uh, either the representative or the personification of the people against the elite. Because actually not all of these parties are like that. Um, they don't all speak exactly the same language. There's a, there's a great variety in terms of what political agenda they actually push forward. Um, but I think 
why the uh, political class likes to think of them as populism is that uh, the political class as its social institutions that it used to organise around have decayed actually starts to see the people as the problem. So therefore, in a sense, it's, it's, a, it's a useful hostile label to throw at them, even though they're, they're so disparate. And um, really, the, the political class is kind of, uh, and you know, media commentators and academics are trying to find a positive label for what is largely a negative phenomenon, the falling apart of support for the old federal left-right political um, settlement. Following on from uh, the previous question, why has the voter backlash, the electoral revolt, whatever you want to call it, against neoliberal orthodoxy taken the form it has? Why have we seen this this seemingly endless parade of, in many ways, clownish, ridiculous, almost comical figures like Farage, Palmer, Trump, Pauline Hanson and so on? I mean, say what you like about them. They're certainly more entertaining than uh, drab, grey individuals like Anthony Albanese and and Scott Morrison. But, But why have we not seen any real political alternatives emerge, either from the left or right. And and I'd ask you here to focus on Australia, in particular, the lack of alternatives emerging during this campaign. Well, look, I don't think it's just been these figures. I think it's important to look at Emmanuel Macron particularly because Mm. he was seen as the saviour of the political elite, even though he was actually an outsider in many ways. Uh, He came in with a technocratic program that fell apart pretty fast when he he started to face resistance. He became increasingly anti-democratic in his focus. Um, Sure, you can laugh about aspects of Macron. There are lots of aspects you can have a giggle about, but he's not a ridiculous or clownish figure in, in, in any sense and was seriously see. So I think there's been all kinds of different sort of alternatives have come out uh, to fill the gap left by the collapse of support for, for, for the major parties. But I think ultimately the reason there isn't anything positive is there's no social basis for anything positive. Macron kind of was this figure who floated above the French political system, got popular support at the level of votes, had to cobble together a pseudo party to then run in the sort of the the, elected representative elections, um, a party that itself has been weak and and riddled with all kinds of problems. Um, I, I think the issue is there is no social basis or some kind of new movement, um, like there was, you know, in that in that early 20th century period where the rise of the labour movement, uh, you know, absolutely helped reshape politics. Even if that meant that the labour movement was entirely encased in the political system as a result. Coming back to Australia specifically, Ted, are there alternatives emerging? Perhaps I'm being uh, perhaps I'm being too cynical about uh, the lack of alternatives in, in, in this campaign. Oh, no, I, I can't. I can't see any serious alternative. Um, I think. Uh, uh, I think the issue is that all you're seeing is the negative aspect. So suddenly, uh, you've got these independents, the teal independents that are being talked about, and now people are becoming enthusiastic when they realise, uh, you know, temporarily enthusiastic once they realise how hollow Albanese is and and how actually how pathetic he is, given how much time he's had to prepare for this. Um, and they're investing some hopes in them in fixing uh, in fixing the system, but they're they're not going to be capable of doing that either because they really don't have a social basis. Yes, they can pull votes on the basis of disillusionment with the major parties in various forms, particularly. I mean, I read this amazing article about the bogernisation of uh, of the Liberal Party and uh, the uh, Teal candidate running against um, uh, Josh Frydenberg and Kuyong, um, and they're talking about, well, the Liberal Party, they've just become so bogernised because they don't talk to us, you know, wealthy upper-middle-class elites in Kuyong anymore, so we need a you know, progressive independent to talk to those people instead. Um, 
So you see this, this kind of um, you know, falling away of the old party's grip on things, but, but really you don't see anything substantial uh, come in its way, I don't think. And there's some strange sort of cultural factors and identity politics comes into that, but we'll perhaps uh, get you on another time to discuss uh, that aspect of things. But what is the COVID factor in this election, Tad? How has it impacted Australian politics and why is nobody talking about it anymore? Um, and I should point out uh, just on that, uh, in preparing for this uh, interview, we had a bit of a discussion about you know what questions uh, I would be asking and you pointed out that I myself hadn't considered asking any COVID, any COVID-related questions, which was really quite striking. But it does seem to me that nobody's talking about it, which is which is curious and strange. But what, what's the impact on Australian on Australian politics, and why is nobody seemingly talking about COVID anymore? Yeah, look, I, I think it's important to recognise that in the initial period, um, the, the COVID crisis and the panic around it, uh, and then the sudden period of politicians, mainstream politicians, suddenly appearing to act and be decisive and to be doing stuff for the first time in ages, when for a very long time, you know, as, as all this populist stuff was happening and so on, they appeared weaker and more confused and less decisive and so on. Here, suddenly, they were able to exercise uh, what looked like an iron fist in, you know, uh, protecting the, the public, keeping the public safe and so on. Um, and I think they rode that, 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 that initial wave um, uh, and, and you, you could see the results. There was a massive increase in, in the popularity and approval of most politicians, even ScoMo, like um, you know, even Trump briefly at the beginning of that period saw a little bit of a bounce uh, in, in his figures. Um, but ScoMo had a huge boost in terms of the approval ratings. Um, and you saw all, all political leaders uh, with the benefit of incumbency who were tough and who acted on COVID did incredibly well. And you saw... Uh, commentators um, like uh, Catherine Murphy, who, who's one of the political, uh, you know, senior political commentators uh, for the Guardian, she she waxed lyrical about the national cabinet. Suddenly, all the political woes that she was uh, so so worried about uh, in the Australian system were just dissipating thanks to this newfound unity about keeping Australia locked down, the borders shut down, and so on. Um, it was an incredible period, um, and I think we've seen. Most of that now dissipate, uh, but I, th- I think the other thing that's really important is that no one really seems to know anything about it. It's almost like they want to make it go away, and uh, and I think uh, I think it's really important to understand that what happened was in the middle of that crisis here in early 2020, uh, when the politicians acted, they were on top of the world. But at some point, it became politically unsustainable. And at the end of last year, you suddenly saw them moving incredibly quickly, well ahead of public opinion, towards opening the country up. They obviously saw political reasons why this was unsustainable. And we can always you know, try to blame Don Parate, uh, for because he was a new premier. He came in, had something to prove. He was a bit of an anti lockdowner himself. We can blame it all on him, but at exactly the same time, Dan Andrews followed suit as well. And you can see how the political class found that, that this uh, new political settlement around uh, locking people down, you know, controlling things, controlling borders, actually, uh, actually suddenly uh, they decided it wasn't useful to them anymore. They had to figure out how to get the hell out of it. And some of them have partly paid the price. I think probably ScoMo is one of them. If you look at that two-year period, uh, ScoMo really just went along with uh, the projects that the Labor and Liberal premiers w- were going on with the lockdowns. In fact, he was a pretty powerless character in some ways because the public health issues are largely governed by the states in, in terms of the way that Australians 
constitution is is set up. So, so they all rode this this wave of uh, of COVID lockdowns, and then when it all started to when it all started to become politically unsustainable, they all got out, which is why they don't want to talk about it. Because you think about what is the central issue that is really bubbling up this election? It's actually the cost of living. Mm. Because people have really been squeezed, not just by the two years they got squeezed over COVID, but of course some people were able to save money if they were in a lucky position with an ongoing job and so on. Um, but now we have a situation where inflation has gone up. Uh, part of the reason there's inflation is because of supply chain problems, because of the disruptions of the world's uh, you know, uh, trade system. Um, partly, you know, it's the huge amounts of money that not just the government, but more disturbingly, the, the balance sheet of the, of the Reserve Bank of Australia, it's, it's crazy. They've just released a graph the other day to show how much, how much they blew on managing this crisis. Uh, and it is historically unprecedented um, amount of money uh, being poured into the economy to keep the economy afloat in, in terms of the, what the Reserve Bank was doing. So there's all these things that have come out of that period that no one actually really wants to talk about it that way because, of course, to them, you know, we managed the public health crisis and it's all very good, but actually the chickens are coming home to roost now. So it's this undercurrent that doesn't express itself because I think most people thought something had to be done about public health issues, even though perhaps people like me who are opposed to lockdowns thought it was irrational and ultimately was going to uh, cause more destruction than good. But um, lots of people you know, thought it was an important thing to keep Australia safe, to, to take tough measures and so on. But now that we're coming out of it, uh, the chickens have come home to roost. And, and I think that's what's you know, behind stuff in the election. But then when you look at the main parties... Is there really that much of a difference between how they're going to deal with the cost of living crisis? Mm. Actually, neither of them really have answers. No party's got answers to this crisis. Um, yeah, and I think that's, that's, that's really where we're at. It's going to be an election that might change government, but uh, whichever side comes in is really going to face uh, tremendous political pressures.